Welcome, happy warriors. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Thank you for being part of the show, and thank you for being a happy warrior, who, whether in rain or shine, whether in good times or bad, happy warriors constantly try to improve their lives and to live the good life. What is the good life? Well, the good life is a life in which you have active, thriving, all five zones of your life. And a good life is where you're actively working on improving day by day, each and every one of the five critical zones of life, your family, your finances, your fitness, your friendships, and your faith. Those are the five critical areas. And whether it's good or bad, whether the times are good or bad, you're working on them at all times. Now, at the time of my preparing this show, uh, the world is six weeks into a war, which on the surface of it appears to be a war between Israel and the Hamas terror group. But in reality, it is actually a much larger titanic struggle fought in many different countries on almost every continent between the ideas of the Quran and the ideas of the Bible. Now, if that is too provocative for you, if that is too impolite, how about we say it's a war between barbarism and civilization? And there I must stop, because if you wished to argue that this war is between democracy and terrorism, I'm afraid that I, your rabbi, must protest. Hamas won a democratic election in January 2006. And uh, Ismael Haniyeh, who now lives in a mansion in Qatar, became head of the Gaza government and also one of the heads of Hamas, a position he still occupies to this day. Let's not forget that Germany elected Adolf Hitler into power in 1932 democratically. Okay, so the idea that somehow democracy is this great force for good which is under threat, and if we can only defend democracy, all will be well. Nah, not exactly. But first of all, what will be well is if we can grow the number of subscribers to this show, and uh, that is best done by you subscribing right now on, on whatever platform you're listening. It would be fantastic if you wouldn't mind doing that, and uh, that way we are able to stay in, in closer contact. And, uh, you know, we don't bug you. We don't, uh, we don't keep sending you stuff, but uh, the number of subscribers is important to us. And so with very little effort, you can go ahead and click on the subscribe and make that happen. And while we're at it, uh, when I speak about 
living the good life, I speak about making sure that you integrate the five critical zones of your life into one cohesive life. And those five zones, your family, your finances, your faith, your friendships, and your fitness, um, all of that, the blueprint for that, the, the manual for making that happen, because otherwise this is just a nice phrase. It's just some pretty rhetoric. Oh, we must all integrate our life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to actually make it happen for tangible improvement in your family life, and your family life means every aspect of your family life, not only relationships with siblings and parents, sibling relationships with within an, uh, a nuclear family, but it also includes your intimate relationship, yeah, how, how that works and whether that improves and finances address your income and your revenue. All of these things are mutually interdependent in a very complicated but in a very important way. And, you know, almost everything true in the world is complex. Life and this planet is far too complicated to be resolved by simple slogans. I, I repeatedly get asked, uh, you know, what is the uh, single most important thing for a couple to know who want to make a great marriage? Or what's the most important thing an entrepreneur should know who wants to build a great business? And my usual answer, not intending to be glib, my usual answer is the most important thing for a couple to know when embarking on a marriage is that there is no one most important thing. There's more than one. And you can't allocate a hierarchy of value because they are all important in different ways at different times. What's the one most important thing for an entrepreneur to know who wishes to build a successful business? He needs to know that there is not one simple slogan that'll take him onto the road for success. Life is complicated. And uh, our new book, The Holistic You, is designed to provide you with a roadmap into this disturbingly complex territory. That's right. So uh, the book is called The Holistic You, and it is available at our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And of course, it's also available on any sites, any e-commerce stores where you like buying books. I'd tell you the name of the main one, but they don't advertise on our show, so uh, we won't give them any free advertising. So um, uh, so you, you, no matter how scary things are that are happening, the changes that are going on are not only scary, they're very significant. But in spite of all of that, and and the worry hangs heavy on me, at the time I prepare this show, I am extremely concerned about the hostages being held in Gaza. This is unprecedented. In the Vietnam War, the Red Cross visited hostages. In World War II, the, the Red Cross visited uh, prisoner of war camps. And the Red Cross is calmly accepting that they're staying away. No, no protests, no arguments. Uh, I have given my last dollar to the Red Cross. I will tell you that. No, nothing else ever again. Uh, because at the very least, I would have expected the Red Cross to be issuing 
strong and strident protests from their headquarters in Geneva, telling the world that they are being prevented from seeing the hostages in Gaza. Nothing, not a word, dead silence, no problem. And um, I, uh, I am concerned. I am extremely worried about their fate. And um, I'm, I'm not feeling confident that they are going to be returned alive and well. I hope I'm wrong. But uh, if you detect a heaviness in me at the moment, it's because I'm unable to get rid of that fear, that just taking into account everything I know about Hamas, everything I know about Islam, everything I know about the people that make up this group known as the Palestinians, uh, fills me with deep, deep dread. I hope I'm wrong. But uh, regardless of that, I still have to live my best life. I have to make sure that I continue working on my family and my finances and my faith as well as my fitness and my social life, my friendships, all of those things continue to be important. Maybe they're even more important in times of stress. And so uh, there we are, understanding that uh, democracy isn't the great cause here. Let's not fool ourselves. We're fighting for democracy. No, that's not true. It's the simpleton's way of looking at it, and it simply isn't true, like most oversimplified things. Uh, Plato, I'm you know, no huge fan, but, but you know, one has to know a little bit about uh, the early Greek thinkers, and uh, Plato um, actually predicted that democracy, letting people govern themselves, would eventually lead the masses to support the rule of tyrants. Well, we saw, certainly saw that in Germany, and we certainly saw that in Gaza. And for heaven's sake, I do believe I'm watching it happen in the United States of America. Uh, I first became aware of this trend. I, I first realized what was happening during the COVID lockdowns. When I saw that the police were letting criminals go untouched, I saw that people who were walking out of stores burdened with stolen merchandise, ambling out of the stores, they weren't frightened at all. And the police stood by, law enforcement stood by and watched it happen. And I saw in the summer of 2020, as COVID was at its peak, thousands of people on the streets rioting, burning, looting, and the police stood by on the instructions of their civilian bosses. Yes, that's right. Mayors, city councils, governments are everywhere told, stand down, give them room to express their feelings. But uh, the same police descended in furious force on 
Pastor John MacArthur's church in Valencia, California, and on dozens and dozens of other churches around the United States, dragging people out in handcuffs because they dared to violate the rules of government to lock down and stay home. Um, I saw uh, recently pictures of police ignoring violent and illegal Palestinian protests on the streets of London, but arresting a 65-year-old man who held up a placard in which he, uh, on, on which he had spoken. He said Islam is uh, hurting English values. They carted him off in handcuffs, but ignored the violations by uh, 100,000 Palestinian protesters, or, or let's say, I don't know, they were all Palestinian protesters. And so, uh, yeah, uh, Plato turns out to have been right. Democracy easily leads to the rule of tyrants. Later, Aristotle and his students taught that anyone who sought to influence people and to gain power must focus on controlling the emotions of the population rather than influencing their logical thinking. Well, television, political advertising does exactly that because television does appeal to the emotions, whereas, um, whereas of course, the, uh, um, where, whereas radio or voice or reading appeals naturally to the intellect. This is what those ancient Greek thinkers understood so well. And that is the, the trap of democracy. Power would be seized by anybody who could harness the collective will of the citizens by appealing to their emotions, you know, rather than using evidence and facts to try and change their minds. You've got to appeal to the hearts, not the minds. And uh, that would be the uh, people of Gaza. That would be the citizens of Germany still smarting from the humiliation of the Versailles Treaty that ended World War I. They were ripe for Hitler's emotional appeals. All you've got to do is listen to some of the speeches that Adolf Hitler gave. Even if you don't understand German, you can hear that they are appeals to the emotion. My goodness, can you ever? And by contrast, you listen to the speeches of Winston Churchill, Prime Minister of England during the war, and you will hear arguments to the intellect, arguments to the head, not to the heart. In America, it's clear that progressives who have been herding the country towards totalitarian tyranny always talk of the threat to democracy. Oh, you know what January the 6th was? A threat to our democracy. Oh, you know what Donald Trump constitutes? Oh, a threat to our democracy. And that's, that's what they're all about. Everything is a threat to democracy. And that naturally is supposed to throw us into a tizzy and uh, frighten us and make our hearts tremble because we all know democracy is our highest value. Yeah, democracy is our highest value in the minds of people who want to seize total power over the people. 
So uh, please don't believe the lie that any of this is about defending democracy. Our enemies have always known that our childlike faith and primitive devotion to democracy was one of our biggest weaknesses and could and should and would be used against us. Let me ask you to think back, please. Think back, if you would, 22 years, not to September the 11th, 2001, that sunny, that, that, that sunny Tuesday morning, that all our ideas about democracy and peace and our futures all collapsed with the collapse of the World Trade Centers into fiery pits of hot ash. Now, don't think back to uh, September the 11th, 2001, but um, join me in this little thought experiment. Would you think back to the day before? That was Monday, September the 10th, 2001. If we would have been discussing the threats to America back then, it was simple. Communism in general and the Soviet Union in particular. If anybody would have said to you on Monday, September the 10th, 2001, that Muslims blowing up people in American nightclubs and Muslims shooting soldiers on military bases as Major uh, Malik Hassan, uh, Nidal Malik Hassan did on Fort Hood, uh, you would have thought they were mad. Yet only 24 hours later, your mind would have been swirling around in a turbulent maelstrom. You probably would have needed days to even start processing your newly shaped worldview. Today, the idea of Islam imperils your way of life. Yesterday, the idea of communism imperiled your life. We were worried back then about the spread of an idea the idea of communism. Yes, you'll remember the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. The Soviet flag came down off the Kremlin in 1991, two years later, but the idea of communism would not go away. And why should it? It may have different names, depending on whether you are wearing a suit or whether you are wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Communism, socialism, progressivism, leftism, liberalism, it makes no difference. You know what it's like? It's like saying compared to a guy on a paddleboard, an airplane is the fastest way of crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Now, most people have no idea of exactly how fast a passenger airline flies, airliner flies, as it crosses the Atlantic Ocean. Some go 450 miles an hour, some go 500 miles an hour, some 550, and the venerable old queen of the skies, the Boeing 747, which started flying, by the way, in about 1970, that's over 50 years ago, and it still remains the fastest transatlantic airliner at 650 miles an hour. Makes you wonder how much progress we've made, doesn't it? 
We can argue about the speeds, but the total difference. Yeah, I mean, we can argue about, uh, you know, which plane goes 500, which goes 600, but it doesn't really make a lot of difference because the total difference in actual flying time, shall we say, between London and Miami, between the slowest airliner and the fastest airliner, it's less than two hours difference. You will probably spend more time after you land trying to get through customs and immigration. The point is that airplanes are what they are. Slight differences that make absolutely no practical difference. Similarly, look, there's no point in arguing about differences between communism and liberalism or socialism and progressivism. They're all the same thing with only tiny and insignificant differences of degree. What is this thing, communism, socialism, leftism, progressivism? What is it? It is the inevitable way that well-intentioned people, as well as very ambitious people, organize human society if they believe in the religion of secular fundamentalism. If there is no God who created heaven and earth, then it is up to us humans to devise a moral matrix. Because this I want you to think about, because I really want you to absorb this into your muscles and into the cells of your body. You really have to get this. People who cannot agree or who do not agree on what is good and what is evil cannot live together. No police force in the world could make that happen. And so if we reject a God-given moral matrix, then we have no option but to devise a human-made moral matrix. In other words, if you want to organize people into a society, and it's almost always better to have a structured society than chaos and anarchy, and I think most people know that, and certainly people who have immigrated here from other countries, countries in which they have experienced the death and the suffering and the trauma and the horror of chaos and anarchy. And they arrive in a country with structure and, and regardless of how good or bad it is, they're so happy to be there. They're so thrilled to be in a place where there is some form of structure. And so everybody knows if we're going to reject the moral matrix of the Bible, the moral matrix that created Western civilization, the moral matrix that created the United States of America, but we're rejecting that one and we have to come up with our own, then that's what we have to do. We have to devise what are we going to make our highest value? Well, it depends on whatever is fashionable at the time. How about good things? What are you going to agree on is good? Well, equality is a big one. And conversely, the great evil would be racism. Over the past two decades or so, we saw a triangle of force developing in the world. Three competing ideas vying for power and trying to win the hearts of men and women everywhere 
from the streets of Tehran to those of Topeka, and from the streets of London to the streets of Louisville. That's right, from Vladivostok to Venezuela. You know, Venezuela used to operate on, broadly speaking, a Bible-based Judeo-Christian system, and Venezuela thrived. You know, Venezuela was moving up the scale, it was doing great. But then the forces of communism won and took over democratically, I might remind you. And today Venezuela is an absolute basket case. I have to tell you that um, I do believe, and you know, go ahead and write to me if you, uh, if you think I'm horribly wrong on this, but I do believe that some of the Biden administration's hostility to Vladimir Putin is the fact that Putin has spoken out loudly and uh, clearly about his Christian faith. I do believe that those leaning towards the evil totalitarian that flows from progressivism and from liberalism and from leftism hate any expression of Christianity. And so we've got this three-part force, three competing ideas. And you know what they are? They are, number one, the ideas of the Bible, number two, the ideas of the Koran, and number three, the ideas of progressivism, liberalism, socialism, communism. Those are the three competing ideas. The people of Russia have astonishingly rejected communism and are somewhat adopting the values of the Bible. Now, there are other things going on there, of course, but it's interesting to watch just what is happening. Now, up until that Monday, September the 10th, 2001, that I asked you to think back on a little while ago, there were really only two competitors for the hearts and minds of men, communism and Bible-based Western civilization. And during the 60s and 70s, communism was in an aggressive, imperialistic, spreading mode. That was one of the reasons that America found itself fighting in Korea and why America found itself fighting in Vietnam. It was because people understood the dangers of the ideas of communism, how seductive they were and how quickly they would destroy the structures of society rooted in Judeo-Christian Bible-based thinking. And at that time, the Soviet Union was spreading aggressively through Africa and through Asia. And as more and more of the world adopted the seductive ideas of socialism, there was less and less of the world that we could think of as free. And that meant that the economic power of the United States was going to be strangled. And the inevitable outcome of that is the military might of the United States would be dramatically reduced because 
military force is partially dependent on economic strength and economic power. That's obvious, isn't it? It's amazing how many people don't understand that, but I'm quite sure happy warriors know that power trumps paper. Treaties, agreements, whatever else you want to write on paper, not worth the paper it's written on, as Yogi Berra used to say, but uh, power, I'm afraid, actually does count. And so up till, up till September the 11th, 2001, nobody ever thought that Islam was a serious contender for the minds of human beings. But um, we know exactly where America stood during that period from World War II until September the 10th, 2001. We know because, after all, it was President Dwight Eisenhower who added to the American Pledge of Allegiance those words, under God. And he did that in 1954, specifically to distinguish the United States from the soul of communism. Because back then, everybody understood that the titanic struggle going on in the world, the sort of thing that... uh, fiction writers made much of with um, Star Wars, this, this whole idea of a great gigantic struggle going on. Well, it's true. The great gigantic struggle was going on. And it was between communism and the civilization of the Bible, two competing and incompatible sets of ideas. And it was all about the role of God. Communism created the inevitable society that results from a godless worldview, and the United States created the highest aspiration of a society based on a Judeo-Christian Bible worldview. And in that competition, in that simple competition, up till September the 10th, 2001, That simple competition between the ideas of communism and the ideas of the Bible, the ideas of the Bible win an easy victory, as indeed they did in that period from 1989 to 1991. The powers of communism collapsed everywhere, excepting in the hearts of progressive university students and professors throughout the West. But, my dear happy warriors, when there are three contenders in the ring, a win goes most easily to the two that form an alliance. It's like one of those wrestling matches where they start off with, uh, you know, 10 men in the ring, and then after a little, you see sometimes an alliance forms, and two guys start working together, and they pretty much toss everyone else out of the ring, and then it finally comes to the struggle between the two of them. And that happens as well in, in, um, in human affairs and geopolitical affairs. And, um, and so when there are three contenders in the ring, communism, Islamism, and the Bible— when those three sets of competing ideas are in the ring, a two a win usually goes to the two that form an alliance. Now, typically, 
I don't have to remind you that those alliances formed for reasons of temporary expediency don't last long. And when they do break up, they cause a lot of trouble. Think the Russians and World War II, followed by what Winston Churchill called the Iron Curtain, and thereafter the Cold War. The Judeo-Christian Bible-based set of ideas that created Western civilization and the United States of America obviously cannot ally with the ideas of Islam, and they obviously cannot ally with the secular fundamentalism of progressivism. So we're on our own, while the other two ally temporarily. That's right. The same college students who have been aggressively pushing communism on the campuses of England and the campuses of the United States of America and Canada and Ireland and France, well, of course, they also push Islamism. Islamism and communism are at the moment allied together with one another. Now, some of you are thinking to yourselves, and, and I, I know this is, is true. Some of you are thinking to yourselves, oh, the rabbi is making a huge fuss about a regional conflict. This is about the land. That's all it is. And like all land conflicts, it will ultimately be resolved by a bureaucrat with a map and a pencil. And he'll draw some lines, and that will be that. But um, that's not really exactly so. Because the battles between the culture of the Quran and the people and the civilization of the Bible goes back a long time. It was, of course on September the 11th, 1683, that Christian forces made battle with Islamic armies at the gates of Vienna and defeated them. I have no doubt in my mind that in the way that religion gives people long memories and secularism contracts people's memories until they involve only today, which is why it is, that progressives, socialists, communists are very comfortable with abortion and very comfortable with demolishing the statues and monuments of yesterday because the inevitable and ultimate direction of progressivism and leftism and liberalism and socialism and communism, the inevitable direction of that is always towards the hedonism of today. That's all that matters. But by contrast, Religious people have very long memories, and they look forwards and they look backwards. And so I don't doubt for a moment that when Muhammad Atta and his group were planning the attack on New York and Washington, D.C. in 2001, they chose September the 11th because revenge is very important in the culture of the Quran. Now, the Bible says do not take revenge, but the culture of the Quran makes a virtue of taking revenge. And so since it was Christian forces that attacked 
the Muslims at the gates of Vienna in 1683 and defeated them, obviously it has to be on a September the 11th that the most visible forces of Christianity, namely the United States of America, needs to be attacked. And along the same lines, of course, as I've said before, uh, when the date of October the 7th was selected for the attack on Israel six weeks ago, well, um, November the 11th was the date of a huge defeat inflicted upon the Muslim naval forces in the Mediterranean. It was on the 7th of October in 1571 that the Islamic navy was defeated forever. It never rose again. That was October the 7th. Yes, 1571, in the Gulf of Lepanto between Greece and Italy. And so, uh, yeah, these, uh, th- these things have been going on for a long time. It's um, Jews were massacred in the city of Hebron in 1929. In exactly, by the way, photographs show exactly the same pictures as too many of us have seen that were seen in the kibbutz of Ba'eri and some of the other villages attacked by Hamas on September the, on October the 7th. Um, yes, it was a massacre of Jewish citizens in Hebron, 1929, right? Uh, 20 years before the state of Israel even came into being. Uh, this has nothing to do with the land. It has nothing to do with borders. There will never be a two-state solution. That's a silliness that has emerged from pencil-pushing bureaucrats in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Um, it's, it's nonsense. That's not what this is about. It never was, and it isn't. Uh, when Muslims destroyed Pan Am Flight 103, a big, filled with passengers, Boeing 747 over the skies of Scotland in 1988. That wasn't about Israel. When um, Muslims bombed the London underground, the London subway system in July 2005, killing over 50 people and injuring 700. What was that about? How did England upset them? So I'm I'm not sure that everybody gets this clear. And what I'm saying I know is impolite, and I know it's very profoundly disturbing because we all would like to believe that there will be a peaceful solution to all of this. And we all love the popular bromide. Oh, violence never solves anything, which, of course, is not true. Um, so uh, I know it pains you to hear when I say that uh, this is not going anywhere. This is not a land dispute between quarreling tribes in the Middle East. This is Star Wars. This is a grand titanical struggle between two sets of competing ideas that are so incompatible they cannot coexist. Now, when I say they cannot coexist, I should point out that in the twin civilizations of the Bible, Judaism and Christianity, there is ample room for other people. In other words, you know, again, uh, obviously Christianity went through a reformation in, in, um, in uh, 
um, in uh, in 1500. <laughs> Pardon me, with all my dates, I was getting confused. Uh, but in 1500, but by and large, uh, nobody gets forced to become a Christian. Nobody gets forced to become a Jew. In fact, on the contrary, it's quite hard. And, uh, and you know, God bless everybody, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, Muslims, uh, LDS, Roman Catholics. If, if you are Jewish, God bless everybody. There is no requirement that to get to heaven, you have to be Jewish. There's no requirement that the world must not contain anything but Jews. There's no requirement like that. There's no requirement like that in any aspect of Christianity. None at all. However, what I think a lot of us don't fully understand is that in the culture of the Quran, there is no room for anyone else. That is why Islam spread so successfully, because the choice given to the Persian people, for instance, was Islam or die. Right? They used to have a Zoroastrian religion, but they were told by invading armies of Islam, you either become Muslim or you die. Well, that's a pretty persuasive argument because the idea of Islam is that there will one day be a worldwide caliphate where everybody will worship Allah and everyone will live under Sharia law. And so the ongoing existence of Jews and Christians is an insult to the idea, the fundamental idea of Islam. Now, note I am not saying this is every single Muslim. I'm not saying that uh, Muslims are. I'm saying the underlying idea of Islam in the same way that I never would have said every Russian is, is a horrible person in the 1960s or 70s. I'm saying the idea of communism was evil, dangerous, and destructive. Right? I'm talking about ideas on this show. And... Uh, the, the fact remains that uh, pretty much every violent issue, every violent struggle going on, almost without exception, very few exceptions, involves people subscribing to the ideas of Islam. It is a reality. Now, I know that I've got wonderful Islamic listeners to the show, and God bless you all, and I, I wish you no harm at all. Uh, provided you wish me no harm. In other words, the question is, how loyal are you to the ideas of Islam? But what you should not try and do, because I think pretty much, I certainly am aware of the truth, and I think most people are today, what you shouldn't do is assure us that Islam is a religion of peace. Islam is a religion of peace once everybody subscribes to it, once all other faiths have yielded surrendered their spiritual autonomy and become Muslim. At that point, yes, it's a religion of peace. I agree. But until that time, you know and I know it's not a religion of peace. It isn't. And um, that's just a reality. And that doesn't mean I wish you any harm, but I am really concerned about Islam. I, When I've spoken at, at various colleges, which I no longer do, it's just not worth my time, um, when I spoke at colleges, I used to get attacked as an Islamophobe. They attacked me for being an Islamophobe, a, um, uh, a capitalist, <laughs> and a misogynist, a hater of women. 
So I said, look, as far as a capitalist is concerned, um, that's not my faith. So I think, you know, I'm not a capitalist. Um, and as far as misogynist, that's just ridiculous. But as far as home, as uh, as um, Islamophobe is concerned, a phobia is generally an irrational fear of something. Is it not? Agoraphobia, you know, an irrational fear of open spaces. Uh, but Islamophobia, fear of the ideas of Islam, you better believe it. I'm terrified of the ideas of Islam. Same way as I used to be terrified of the ideas of communism. Really, really dangerous ideas because I know, in spite of the fact that the secular worldview does not know that ideas really matter and that when people attach themselves emotionally to an idea, at that point, you have a mob, a riot, an army, and a revolution. That's how it's always happened. It's how it always will happen. Uh, Plato knew it. Aristotle knew it. And even I know it. It's very, very clear. And so, uh, yeah, uh, I think the ideas underlying the Bible built Western civilization. And it's the civilization that obviously a lot of people of different faiths love because they leave their countries and they come happy to live in the walls of Western civilization. The problem is, of course, that once the, civ once the popula population and citizens of Western civilization themselves forget the mother that gave birth to Western society and all the trinkets and baubles that you love in Western society, right? Chip manufacture did not come from Bolivia. Chip manufacture didn't come from Bangladesh. Chip manufacture didn't come from Bombay. Chip manufacture did not come from Beijing or from Bangkok. Chip manufacture came out of the West. And uh, we all love what our chips power. That when your car talks to you, it's a chip doing that. That chip didn't get invented in Zimbabwe. It just didn't. And Western civilization did all this. And the frightening fragility of Western civilization is that right now, large numbers of the people who are supposed to be defending Western civilization have decided that it's okay to let the mother die, to let biblical faith perish, because somehow Western civilization will survive. Well, of course, you only have to see the streets of New York and the streets of London, streets of San Francisco, and the streets of Stuttgart, Germany, to see that that simply is not a reality. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's nothing to do with Israel. It has to do with the ideas of the Quran and the ideas of the Bible. And the ideas of the Bible are perfectly happy to live alongside the ideas of the Quran. No problem at all. Living in peace would be fine. It is the ideas of the Quran that will not tolerate living with anybody else who has not yet accepted the authority of Allah. It's as simple as that. You know, people used to say quite correctly 
that if the Arabs put down their arms, there'd be peace in the Middle East. But if Israel put down their arms, there would be a pogrom. Well, we now know exactly what happened because about two years ago, the Israeli government disarmed the people who lived in the South. So much faith did they have in the Gaza fence. So much faith did they have in the electronic chip-driven wizardry that allowed them to keep electronic surveillance on the fence, which Hamas destroyed with little grenades dropped from commercial drones. So much faith did they have in all of that that they disarmed the settlers, all the, not the settlers, the, re, the residents of all those kibbutzim and all those settlers. And they told them, you don't need it anymore. We know you're near the Gaza fence, but we've got the fence now and you don't need weapons. This goes back to the early socialist foundings of the state of Israel. And I can tell you that in the last six weeks since the attacks of October the 7th, over 200,000 gun carry applications have been processed by the Israeli Department of Security. That's right. Uh, People are waking up. Not paper, power. Not electronics, power. In the final analysis, if you want to keep your life against bandits, you need bullets. That's a simple reality. And uh, yeah, it's a struggle between a set of ideas that flow from the Quran and a set of ideas that flow from the Bible. That's what it's about. Okay. And the, uh, the reality of it is that it's about the ideas, not the people. And that's why Hamas leadership was so honest when they said they really don't care about how many people die in Gaza. And they are probably baffled by the West's unhappiness at the fact that they hide behind children in schools and patients in hospitals and that they place their weapons and their rockets in civilian areas. And they laugh because the West says, how can you do it? What about the lives of civilians? And they say, this isn't about lives. It's about an idea. And we really care about an idea. And we're going to win because we care about our idea more than you care about yours. And they're right because they hear us bleating about, oh, democracy, we must save democracy. Yeah, that's that's not really what this is all about. And so uh, the hideous savagery that was enjoyed by the barbarians on October the 7th, yeah, uh, it, it's no different. You know, when Muslims were being killed by Russians in Afghanistan in the 80s, Perhaps a million to two million uh, Afghanis, Muslims, were killed during the, the Russian wars of the 1980s. Right? Did you see demonstrations against Russia? No, because they knew that Afghanistan had never been conquered and that the Russians, it, it didn't matter that a million Muslim lives were going. That's why you never saw any demonstrations on the streets of London, on the streets of Washington, D.C., for the, the stop the killing of Muslims, have a ceasefire. You didn't have that. Or when Bashar al-Assad in Syria killed 200,000 Syrians. They weren't Quakers. They weren't Roman Catholics. They were Muslims. Where were the demonstrations against Bashar al-Assad? Where were they? A famous women's magazine exactly at that period featured Mrs. Assad as their woman of the year. 
hey, they just killed 200,000 Muslims. It didn't matter because it's the idea that has to win. Pakistan is right now evicting one and a half million Muslims. Talk about genocide. Talk about ethnic cleansing. They've lived in Pakistan for decades. They're literally right now. You'll have to search for it on Google to see that what I'm telling you is true. Huge numbers of Muslims, over a million, are being evicted from Pakistan and sent to refugee camps in the frigid mountains of northern Afghanistan. That's right. Where are all the protests going on? It doesn't matter. Because when Sunni and Shiites fight with each other, it's for the purity of an idea. And when Muslims slaughter one another, it's for the purity of an idea. But when Jews or Christians fight Muslims and win, well, now that is very serious. And so 7th of, November, 7th of October 1571, that was important. That was serious because it was Christians defeating Muslims. And uh, 11th of September 1683 in Vienna, now that was important because it was Christian armies defeating Muslim armies. And October the 7th in the last six weeks, well, that's important because it's Jewish armies defeating Muslims. But it's not about the lives of Muslims. Don't make that mistake. Gosh, the whole Lebanese civil war in the 70s came about because phalangist and Palestinian Muslims slaughtered each other. Did anybody protest? Did anybody care? No, of course not. You, you, you really, you, you have to understand this. And in a sense, you have to admire it. You have to recognize there is more purity of doctrine among the believers in the Quran than there is right now among the believers to a large extent in the Bible. We've got a biblical system which created the civilization that the whole world desires to benefit from. Of course, they disagree that it came from the Bible, and they have no alternative explanation for why it is that Christendom created Western civilization. It didn't happen anywhere else. The Industrial Revolution didn't happen in Ouagadougou. It didn't happen in West Africa. The, uh, it didn't happen in, in Maori-run uh, New Zealand or Aborigine-run Australia. No, the Industrial Revolution happened in Christian England in 1750. Yes, everything we like about Western civilization flows out of the Bible. But our commitment to the Bible, I'm afraid, is not nearly as strong as Muslims' commitment to the Quran. You've got to admire it. You've got to admire it. It, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't recognize the danger and the problem. The idea, the idea is dangerous and destructive. But the people's commitment to the idea, my God, you've got to appreciate that and admire that. Follow what I'm saying? I hope you do. It's, it's really important that this is understood. And so um, there it is. Um, we, we've got to understand what really is going on. And so uh, a huge fight is going on. And uh, it's, uh, it's happening in 
a small battlefield in terms of the world. It's not like the World War II battlefield. It's a small battlefield. But people are making up their mind whether they are on the side of communism and Islam or they're on the side of the Bible. And unfortunately, not everybody in Washington, D.C. and in Foggy Bottom in Georgetown, not all of them understand that they're on the side of the Bible. They think they're fighting for democracy. What a tragedy. And so, with tremendous fear for the lives of the hostages, for sadness at the fact that over 1,000, 1,200 to 1,400 innocent people were slaughtered on October the 7th in ways that depicted such inhuman savagery and in ways that the perpetrators felt the need to advertise and photograph and let everybody know about, that is a Quranic way of fighting a war. It always has been. It's not a Christian way of fighting. It's not a Jewish way of fighting a war. Desecrating corpses. In World War II, there was little to no desecration of German corpses by the British. And you know what? It's very hard to find examples of German desecration of corpses of, uh, of British soldiers. It may have happened, but not like what we're seeing perpetrated by Islamic forces, not just on October the 7th, beheading people on television. Is this the Middle Ages? Well, that's a silly question. Because if you are religious, time doesn't matter. Jews live today as if Moses was still, not all Jews, I'm afraid, but uh, Bible-believing Jews live as if Moses was looking over their shoulder. That's right. And Christians live as if Jesus walks the earth. And they ask themselves, when confronted with a moral dilemma, what would Jesus do? It's alive, it's now, it's in the present. That's right. But for secular fundamentalists, it's okay to say, what, do they think they're in the Middle Ages? It's a silly question if you understand the titanic struggle going on. They behead because that is part of the Islamic way of fighting war. And they fight a holy war every time they fight. They're fighting for the purity of the doctrine of Islam and for the ultimate defeat of the world of the infidel, the world of Jews and Christians. And if you think it's just Jews and Christians, speak to some of the folks who understood the reason for the separation of India and Pakistan realizing that you have to separate the Hindus and the Muslims because you cannot coexist with people who have a different moral matrix from you. And so, yes, Muslims slaughter Hindus as well. You might remember the attacks on Bombay came from Pakistan not that long ago. They also targeted uh, Jewish communities in Bombay, but not only Jewish, everybody. That's right. This is a struggle of Islam against everybody else, and I totally understand it. And in a sense, I admire it. I, I deplore it, and I don't like it, and I think it's destructive and it's evil, but I also admire the dedication. They won't rest until 
they have made the whole world subject to Allah and Sharia. That's the goal. Tell me, does the West have an equally noble goal? So make the world safe for democracy. How childish can you get? And on that sad and cheerless note, my dear friends, I end. No, no correction. Of course I won't end on a negative note like that. The positive note is that whether times are good or bad, whether you live in a hospitable and wonderful country or whether you live in a tyrannical regime, you still have to live your best life. And if somebody asks you, if a young person will say to you, how do I live a good life? I really do want to live a good life. How do I do it? And the answer is, you have to focus on your five F's. That is how you build a good life. Put tennis on the back burner. Put ballet dancing on the back burner. Put dating and clubbing on the back burner. Put everything on the back burner, excepting building a family, building your finances, building your faith, building your friendships, and building your physical fitness. That's what you should be doing. If anybody asks me, what should a young man be doing between the ages of 13 and 23? I've just told you. There's nothing more important. The sort of life you will have if you devote 10 years between 13 and 23 to putting yourself in a position to build your family, your faith, your finances, your friendships, and your fitness, you're going to have a good life. It'll be impacted by what's happening to society around you, but within a given society, you will have your best life. And that is why Susan Lappin and I wrote The Holistic You, integrating your family, your finances, your faith, your friendships, and your fitness so that you can build your best life. Yes, it is The Holistic You. And on that positive note, my dear happy warriors, I want to wish you a wonderful and blessed week until we meet again next week on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show right here. God bless.